Good evening. Welcome uh, everybody to this LSE Department of Management public lectures on macroeconomics, rebooting business in the world by Mr. Don Tapscott. I am going to chair this meeting, as you infer, as you assume, and I'm professor myself in the Information Systems and Innovation Group, which is part of the Department of Management. And my name is Yanis Kalinikos. Uh, the running order is as, you know, you imagine approximately. There will be a talk by Mr. Tapscott of approximately 40 minutes, and then there will be opportunity for questions and answer, another 20 to 25 minutes. Uh, I have a few, uh, I mean, most people know very well Don Tapscott. He's Canadian. Some people may not know this. Uh, they may from the think that you are from the northern part of the continent, but not exactly where, from Toronto. And uh, presently adjunct professor of management in the Joseph Rockman School of Management, University of Toronto. Is very much acclaimed, and he has for his book Wikinomics uh, on mass collaboration uh, has been relevant for many of us that have over the years insisted on considering IT and the internet not simply as tools to corporate uh, to the service of corporate ends, but crucially as major forces of social engineering and institutional restructuring. Uh, well, before I give the word into uh, Mr. Tapscott, I want to inform you that the meeting is recorded and we hope to produce podcasts of the meeting. Mr. Tapscott, the floor is yours. Okay. Thank you very much. I will sit down. Um, I'm delighted to be here. Wow, Friday night and we have students in a lecture theater. I love working with diehards. Thank you for coming. I thought I might be here by myself this evening. Um, this is a time of very profound change. And uh, by the way, I've written a bunch of books. Uh, this is my 14th book, but they weren't all bestsellers, I have to tell you. Um, I wrote a book in 1981 about the internet, and I think my mother bought most of those. It was like a study in bad timing. But um, as uh, you know, Wikinomics was a big uh, book. It was actually the n uh, number one best-selling management book in the United States for the year in 2007. And Wikinomics was about the corporation. And we argued that the internet is not about websites or eyeballs or stickiness or page views or clicks or any of that. It's a global computational platform that radically drops transaction and collaboration costs. And that is leading to some very profound changes in the way that we create wealth, in the deep structure and architecture of the corporation, and of how we orchestrate capability in society to innovate, to create goods and services. Now, after the book had, uh, was written, I was out traveling around the world, and something occurred to me that was sort of a wake-up call. I was giving a speech in Brussels to a group called Cybos, and um, it's the 
the, um, organized by SWIFT, which is the big uh, agency that does all the banking transactions in the world. And it was a big crowd. I mean, there was like, I don't know, 7,000 people in the audience. And I was giving the closing talk. And it occurred two days after Lehman Brothers had collapsed. And I looked out at this vast audience, and I saw these deer in the headlights, basically, wondering, what does all this mean? And it was sort of like the end of the world as we know it. And uh, collaborating with uh, Anthony Williams, it occurred to me that this is not just some kind of recession or an economic meltdown or some kind of aftermath of a, of a, a global crisis. We're in the uh, early days of a very profound change, a turning point really in human history, where many of the institutions that have served us well for centuries um, are no longer able. They're stalled. They're frozen. They're, or worse, they're in atrophy or in various stages of failure. And the industrial economy and its institutions, arguably, have finally run out of gas. On the other hand, because of the web, there's an opportunity to rebuild these institutions around a whole new open network model and around a new set of principles. So that's what I'd like to, um, to talk to you about today. I was with Paul Krugman yesterday. You know, the economist, uh, writes for the New York Times, stuff won a Nobel Prize. And he was uh, giving a speech at this event in Berlin just before me. And uh, he said that, you know, after a financial crisis of this magnitude, you go into a slump for a long time. And uh, it takes really extraordinary measures, which no governments are prepared to do, to get out of it. He said, this is worse than the slump in 1992 in Japan, or the crisis in Japan. And they've been 18 years of slow economic growth and various declines into recession. And that that's what we're headed into, decades of slump. Now, now he's a brilliant economist, and I have no reason to challenge his view. But you know, I'm, a, I'm of the, the, the perspective that the future is not something to be predicted. It's something to be achieved. And we can achieve a different future. You see, to project that we're moving into this depressed period, and, and he said really bad things can happen. You know, that's the best case scenario. Um, there are certain scenarios whereby we go into a, a, another very deep recession or worse. But this assumes that we're going to continue doing what we do now that it's business as usual in terms of our institutions. We can form a different future. Now, who would have imagined three years ago that we'd be in this situation, that these huge investment banks would go under? Um, who would imagine that a big theme of business books would be how to save capitalism, or even is capitalism savable? And th these books are not being written by you know, <coughs> radical commie pinkos or something. We're talking about Matthew Bishop and Michael Green, the business editors of The Economist, who say we're on the road to ruin. How can we turn away from that road? Well, if you look at these institutions, 
and you look at this problem from the point of view of the institutions of industrial society, you can see both the problem and also the opportunity. Um, I was actually uh, being interviewed and a journalist said to me, Don, how do you know that things are not going to get back to normal? And I said, well, if you, if you come at it from the point of view of each of these institutions, pick one and build a case for me that it's going to go back to normal. Why don't we start with the one that you're in, called the newspaper. Is that going to get back to normal? Well, it's not, because the problem that newspapers solve is no longer a problem. If young, uh, 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 young people who, um, I'm guessing most of you here, don't read the physical newspaper, you get your news online. So one youngster said to me, if the news is important, it will find me. So the Industrial Age Corporation, typified by General Motors, right? America's greatest corporation, went bankrupt, saved by government bailout. Financial system, to me, needs a lot more than some new regulation. It needs a whole new modus operandi based on transparency and integrity and, and interdependence and understanding that there's a bigger role for banks in society than making money for their shareholders. We give banks a license to perform certain functions in the economy, but we sort of lost that. The newspaper, 70 newspapers in North America, North America have gone bankrupt in the last decade. And um, th they, over time, will all disappear. The physical newspaper, and it's, we argue in macroeconomics that there is a new model, a new set of models that are emerging that can, that can enable us to have the really critical functions that a newspaper performs in society. Newspapers have been the foundation of a free society in many ways. Um, and, and, but, but what's happening now is a lot of people in newspapers say, well, it's just a cyclical thing, right? Revenues are down, but it's going to recover. Well, no, this is not cyclical, it's secular. There's a structural change that's happening here. And what's happening is the crisis is just accelerating that very deep structural change that's happening. The nation state and global problem solving. Our institutions for solving global problems like the UN and the G20 and so on can't solve global problems. Um, can we, the AV guy, can we just turn down the volume a little bit on this thing because it's uh, feeding back just a bit. Um, so, did anyone notice there was a General Assembly meeting of the United Nations? It's not just that nothing happened, nobody was even listening. A colleague of mine, Nicholas Negroponte, last week called for the dissolution of the United Nations. Now, I'm not sure that's a good idea, but it's reflective of the fact that these institutions based on the nation state are stalled. The university, there are huge changes that are underway there. I'm convinced that a lot of smart kids in the United States don't go to lectures. The big thing is to get an A without having gone to the lecture. As one youngster said to me, why would I go to a lecture or a room of 300 people and listen to some teaching assistant talk about Peter Drucker when I can go and interact with a real-time Peter Drucker on the web? So the model pedagogy is an industrial age model. It's called mass education. Kind of like mass media and mass production and mass distribution and mass democracy and mass society. It's a one-way model. Um, our governments are stalled. Democracy, work, I mean on and on. The media, the, 
the record industry is collapsing. The, the record industry didn't understand that the internet was the very best thing to happen to it. It wasn't a profitable industry because of the huge bloated distribution channel and the entire industry was based on atoms that are expensive to move around and put in shelves and so on. All of a sudden the internet eliminates all those costs so all the record industry had to do was to change music from being a product to being a service. Everyone in this room, I'll bet even students, will pay two or three pounds a month to have access to any song ever recorded at any time streamed to you on any device. Into your mobile device or your home stereo or your car uh, or, or your television. No one will steal music. Why would you take possession of the song? If you can listen to any song at any time. The whole issue of intellectual property goes away. But rather than having a business model solution to this disruptive change, the record industry took a legal solution and the industry that brought you Elvis and the Beatles is now suing children, hated by its customers, and is collapsing. Uh, you'll read in Wikinomics, for sale outside this room, <laughs> available for volume purchase. Christmas is coming soon. No, <laughs> you'll read in Macroeconomics that um, an industry insider told us that the number three source of the US record labels is suing people that love music. It's so depressing. Um, but on the other hand, for every one of these institutions that's struggling, or is in various stages of, of uh, atrophy, there are sparkling new initiatives based on the web. So that's the depressing part of this conversation is over. Let's talk about how to forge a new future. What we did is we looked deeply at each of these industries and we had a, a research team that investigated them and that found all the lighthouse case studies, the very best examples of, of how the world could be. And there are lots of people, including colleagues of mine, who say, well, oh, the newspaper, we just don't know what's going to happen. It's impossible to predict. The problem with, with a huge change like this is that the old institutions get destroyed before the new ones become clear. Well, I don't buy that. I think that you can see the contours of a whole new set of institutions that are emerging. Now, um, uh, Paul yesterday was going back and doing some comparisons to previous slumps, uh, including the Great Depression. And um, it's very thoughtful stuff. I think to really understand this change, you need to go back a little farther. You need to go back to a previous age, the agrarian age, where we had a feudal society and, the, and, the, and uh, feudal relations of, of uh, of, of production and the economy was an agrarian economy. And back then, knowledge was concentrated in a tiny handful, um, in oligopolies. And people didn't know things. But when the printing press came along, Johannes Gutenberg made his great invention, all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, over time, people started to have knowledge. And when they had knowledge, the institutions of agrarian feudal society appeared to be stalled or in atrophy or unable to advance progress. It didn't make sense for the church to be responsible for medicine. It didn't make sense for a bunch of kings and nobles to be making all the decisions in society. So we saw the rise of 
uh, parliamentary uh, uh, democracy and uh, the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther called the printing press God's greatest act of grace. We saw the creation of the university. The, the originally, the university was just a place to keep the books. But then you started to have smart people come around the university, and over time, universities became places for teaching and for learning. Well, we, and eventually, you saw the creation of the modern corporation, commercial relationships, the nation state. Italy wasn't a nation state until 150 years ago. And the Industrial Revolution, and it was great. Yeah, sure, there's pollution and so on, but it advanced humanity hugely. We had the development and the creation of medicine and science. We, we saw uh, improvements in the quality of life and the standard of living of people. But now, once again, the technological genie has come out of the bottle, and it's pointing to some new opportunities. And this time, the stakes are much higher, because with the industrial age, have come a lot of problems. And arguably, amongst other things, we need to reindustrialize the planet. Uh, the transportation system and energy grid together are really destroying the basis of, of, of human survival. Uh, Bill Clinton was saying to a group of us at Davos last year that if we reduce carbon emissions by 80% in the year 2050, not by 6%, by 80% in the year 2050, it'll take a thousand years for the planet to cool down. And in the meantime, some bad things are going to happen, like a billion and a half people will lose half of their water supply. So most of you in this room are, are young people. You're part of the, the echo of my generation. I'm the post-war generation. In some countries, it was called the baby boom. You're the baby boom echo. And uh, sorry about this, but we're leaving you with this mess. And you've got to rebuild the world. So, but you can do it. Because at your fingertips is the most powerful tool ever for innovation, for finding out what's going on, for informing others, for organizing collective responses, for solving global problems. And you're also the smartest generation ever. You're the first generation to come of age in the digital age. And you think differently. You actually process information differently than I do. I'm a digital immigrant. You're digital natives. I had to learn the language. So, and I'd be happy to talk about that. I say that with some authority because I did a $4 million research project um, on that thesis that I just uh, stated to you. We interviewed 11,000 young people in 10 countries. So, here we have a new age, a new set of possibilities. And this idea that we're moving beyond the industrial age to something new is not, a, is not a fresh idea. I mean, I've been writing about this for 30 years. Some of you may have read a book uh, called The Third Wave by Alvin Toffler. That thing has got to be almost 30 years old. But these ideas were ideas in waiting. Their time had not come. They were waiting for the new web, a global collaborative platform that radically drops transaction and collaboration costs. They were waiting for the first generation to come of age in the digital age, a generation who would have no fear of the technology because it's not there. It's like the air. It's like I have no fear of a refrigerator. And 
there were ideas that were waiting for the, the social revolution, enabled by all this stuff. Who's seen the social network? Anybody here? Yeah. I haven't seen it yet. I just I know Zuckerberg and all these these uh, the players, but I haven't seen the movie yet because I've been in a different city every day for the last since it came out. But um, but these ideas were waiting for some changes to the corporation, and they were waiting for a convulsive shock to the system that would create a burning platform that would cause us to think differently. There's a burning platform now with newspapers. There's a burning platform with government. We can't just tinker with governments anymore. I'm working with the, the uh, government leaders in Portugal. They're implementing these kinds of very deep changes because they have to. Because there's, um, there's no longer an alternative. They need to change the way that we create public value and the, and the division of labor in society about how that's done. So the new web, ain't your daddy's internet, a new generation of young people, the social revolution, and there's an economic revolution as well. So this is leading to five principles. And principles that were not really the principles of the industrial age. Uh, arguably, we had principles that were somewhat antithetical to these, upon which we can rebuild all of our institutions. Let me take a sec on each of these. Collaboration. Um, there, <laughs> I'm not talking about a bunch of nice people getting together in a meeting room and having a nice conversation. I'm talking, this is ain't your daddy's collaboration. This is a very different kind of collaboration that can occur on an astronomical scale. Now, uh, who here studied Ronald Coase, C-O-A-S-E? Okay, he was at LSE, wasn't he? Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, Seventy years ago, he's an economist, and he wrote a, uh, a paper where he asked a deceptively simple question. He said, why does the firm exist? Basically, he said, if Adam Smith is right, and the open market is the best mechanism to determine how goods and resources and people and money and information are allocated in an economy, why isn't everybody an independent contractor at every step along the way in production? Why do we work for firms? And he said the answer is, and he won a Nobel Prize for saying this, the answer is transaction costs. Now when you looked at what he was talking about, he was really referring to the cost of collaboration. He said the cost of search, of finding all the right people in an open market to do something, and the right information, totally prohibitive. This is 70 years ago. The cost of search is prohibited, so we bring all the stuff inside the boundaries of the corporation where you can search better. You have filing cabinets where you can find information and org charts where you can find people and so on. The cost of coordination, the cost of contract. He said if every little activity in the economy was a separate contract, th this would be prohibited. Well, along comes first information technology and um, and the boundaries of the corporation started to become more porous. Some of you um, may know or remember, it was a couple of decades now, I wrote a book called Paradigm Shift, where I said information technology is dropping collaboration costs. And there, although I hadn't read about Coase at the time, um, and it's enabling an enterprise to become extended. Then, uh, then we saw the rise of the internet. And, uh, that further dropped collaboration costs. 
So vertically integrated companies started to unbundle and to focus the, um, the expression. It was actually a poem that I used to use. That it was my poem, my only poem. You focus on what you do best and you partner to do the rest. Okay, it's not Shakespeare. But um, that's what Cisco did. They built a business web network. They succeeded. Their competitors did not. They fell behind. And now, collaboration costs are dropping so much that peers can come together and create value. Peers in the sense of companies acting as peers. Uh, the Boeing 787 Dreamliner didn't have a supply chain. The old approach is you, you create a 20,000 page spec. You put it out to your suppliers. You beat up on them. Then you select all the stuff. And then you come and, and bring it together and you build an aircraft. Boeing said, we can't do that anymore. Things are too complicated. And, and furthermore, you're not suppliers. Some of you are peers. Like, you make the engine and the fuselage and the electronics and the entertainment systems. What we're going to do is give you a 20-page document explaining what we're trying to achieve with this aircraft. And then we're going to co-innovate this thing on a network. And they had some problems and delays, but the Boeing 787 Dreamliner is an unbelievable product. It, there, it has the largest orders ever of any aircraft, and it's a re revolutionary product. When you're at 35,000 feet, it'll feel like you're at 2,000 feet. Um, it's going to be better for human health. It'll be more comfortable. And, and the CEO of Boeing said aircraft will never be designed the same way. So peer collaboration. Peer collaboration can also occur outside the boundaries of traditional companies. So think about it. If you can create an encyclopedia with a million people, it's 10 times bigger than Britannica, it's in 190 languages, it's created by a bunch of volunteers, but according to the big study that's been done, at least on scientific articles, the error rate is about the same as Britannica. What else could you create? Could you create a computer operating system through peer production? Is it possible that social networking is moving to a next step? Social production? That the internet is not about hooking up online, it's a new mode of production? The Linux operating system is kind of good. I mean, Linux is the dominant operating system for medium and large computers. It's, all the dom it's also the dominant operating system for these things, for mobile devices. Linux is used to power nuclear power plants. Linux has some big customers like China. But it's not owned by anybody. So could you create a physical good like a motorcycle? The Chinese motorcycle industry is a bunch of little companies and uh, you make ignition systems, and she makes spokes, and, and uh, you do the marketing, and, and, uh, and you do the aftermarket support and service. They meet in tea houses and on the internet. There's no OEM. There's no Harley Davidson pulling all the strings. This is now one third of all motorcycle production, and it's the biggest motorcycle industry in the world, and get ready for the $1,000 car from China based on the same model. So. This ain't your daddy's collaboration. Now, I'm not going to spend as long on the rest of these, but openness. I mean, transparency is a new force. And uh, companies are going to be naked. 
And this is good because sunlight is the best disinfectant. <laughs> and uh, if you're going to be naked, fitness is no longer optional. Okay? First we said, if you're going to be naked, you better be buff. Meaning, you need to have good value because value is evidence like never before. You say you have the best products and services. They better be the best products and services. But you also need, so you need to have value, but you also need to have values because if you don't, you'll be unable to build trust. If you are buff, by the way, you can open the kimono and all kinds of good things happen. Trans we can talk about this if you want, but transparency within a supply chain drops collaboration costs. You know, you have high, high trust environments, you have lower transaction costs. Sharing intellectual property. Well, why on earth would you do that? Is there anyone here from Microsoft? No? Yes. <laughs> Are you? Okay. So, micro. Sorry? No, no, good. Um, because well, Microsoft is, has had a real sea change on this thing. And in, in some ways, Microsoft was the progenitor of this idea that you open up a platform and you enable people to co-create value on the basis of that. But originally, Microsoft uh, reacted very badly to Linux, uh, badly from my uh, perspective, viewed it as a competitive threat. And you kind of see where they're coming from. I mean, Linux did hurt Microsoft, and MP3 hurt the record labels, and, and uh, Wikipedia hurt Britannica. So why on earth would you embrace something like Linux? Well, IBM had a different approach. They said, um, we're going we're gonna to adopt Linux, basically. And they gave away $400 million of software to the Linux community. Um, and why would they do that? Well, they created a platform upon which they built a multi-billion dollar hardware business. They saved themselves $900 million a year developing their own proprietary operating system. And they also changed the competitive dynamics with Microsoft. In, in, um, in the industry. So, um, whoops, I just want to make sure this is not going to ring. Um, so, I'm not suggesting you give away all your IP. Um, companies need to have a portfolio of intellectual property, some that they own and protect, some that they share within their business network, like Cisco might within its uh, business web, and some that me, you may actually place in the commons. So Nike, check this out. It, they've um, co-launched with other uh, companies this thing called the Green Exchange. And it's ex an extraordinary thing. We explain it in macroeconomics. But it's basically, Nike at Davos this year put 400 patents into this commons of sorts. And, um, but it's an exchange. It's sharing intellectual property. Now, why would they do that? Um, well, the way it works is that Nike might have a patent to make rubber last three times longer. Adidas can't use that patent, but Rubbermaid can. And Rubbermaid, if they use it, there's a license fee that comes back to Nike. And then if Rubbermaid adds some intellectual property to the patent, gets it stronger, Nike can cross-license that back. So this is not about socialism or something like that. It's about, it's about competitive advantage. It's about, it's not just about a rising tide lifts all boats. It's about new ways of thinking about value creation in a world where intellectual property is no longer atoms, it's bits. And bits behave really differently than atoms. They don't know rules about not flying around the world at the speed of light, for example. 
Interdependence, if there's anything this current crisis should show us, it's that business can't succeed in a world that's failing. And we now have four pillars of society. Private sector, the state, the civil society, and there's a fourth pillar called you. You are a pillar of society. 20 million of you got involved in the Haiti crisis and raised money, saved lives. Individuals on the Yushahidi network found kids in the rubble in Haiti. It's a little girl. It's the opening story of macroeconomics. She's in the rubble. She's been buried there, dying, but she managed to get her device and texts onto the Yushahidi network. They pick up the Creole. They, um, they translate it. They're able to figure out her location. The rescue team goes in and saves her life. These were kids in Kenya that found a kid in Haiti. So this is a big change. And the final big one is integrity. So um, I'm going to skip ahead here. So these are a bunch of slides that just are about what I was talking about. OK, from industrial age corporation to mass collaboration, ancient daddy's collaboration. This is a book I wrote 10 years ago that nobody read. Um, <laughs> I have a few of these studies in bad timing. It argued that transparency is a powerful new force, and we need to embrace it in all of our institutions, like the financial services industry. <laughs> and if we don't, really bad things could happen. Oh, well. Um, <laughs> sharing intellectual property. We now have four pillars of society, and um, we need to bake integrity into our bones and into our DNA. So how do we go about rebuilding the world and its institutions? What I'm going to do, I don't want to talk this whole time. In fact, I'm going to end quickly so that we can have a conversation. Um, I'll, I'll mention a couple of these, and then you can talk or ask me about any one of them that you want, and we'll kind of get into it. Okay? Does that sound like a plan? But let's just kind of set up the model here. Uh, the Industrial Age Corporation. Well, there it was. Um, this is a story in macroeconomics about this guy named Jay Rogers. He was an Iraq vet, and he saw his, kill, uh, his friends getting killed, Humvee blown up beside him, and so on. And he decided that the reason that we're in Iraq is to protect America's energy sources and uh, oil. And the big user of oil was what he thought was a sclerotic auto industry that's been unable to build automobiles that, um, that don't externalize costs onto society, that protect the environment, that uh, are, are fuel efficient, and so on. So he decided, well, I'm going to create a whole a, a new kind of auto industry. It's called Local Motors. He has 5,000 designers, but they're on the web. And they work on a contract basis. They respond to challenges. He doesn't have 3 million square foot manufacturing facilities. He has local plants and 30 localities around the US that hire local people. And they build cars for the local regions, called Local Motors, customized automobiles. Uh, they're rolling this thing out now. The cars are really cool, and they're not expensive either, and you can be involved in the design of your car. Is this something that could scale? Well, the bad news and the good news for Jay Rogers is he's now got competitors that are trying to build an auto industry based on the same model. Now, traditional companies can change too. Procter & Gamble 
have opened up their innovation. The old model is your most precious resource goes out the elevator every night, human capital. Um, well, human capital is sure important, but it doesn't have to be inside the boundaries of your company. So PNG is looking for a molecule that'll take red wine off a shirt. You do the math. They have 7,000 chemists inside their boundaries and a million outside that are organized into ideagoras. That's my word, okay? An ideagora is an agora or market for ideas, ideagora. It's an open market for uniquely qualified minds. And sure enough, there's a retired chemist in, in um, London or a grad student in Taipei that comes up with a molecule. PNG pays them a couple hundred thousand pounds. They have a fabulous new product. Well, how do you get the chemists inside to want to find the solution outside? Wouldn't you have the NIH syndrome, not invented here syndrome? Do you know that? Well, they change the compensation system. You get comped for innovation rather than whether or not you did it yourself. Rather than NIH, they call it the PFE syndrome, proudly found elsewhere. The financial system. Um, well, here's a radical proposal. The old model uh, didn't work. It's called an integrity violation. Um, it was actually a violation of all five of these principles of economics. Um, okay, so you have these US uh, institutions and they uh, did all these subprime mortgages. So here's what we're doing. I'm, gonna lend, I'm a bank, I'm gonna lend you and you and you and you and you a mortgage, subprime. I know that none of you will be able to make the payments. In fact, I know that you're not even gonna make the first payment but I'll give you a line of credit, okay? So you've covered off for a while. And I'm gonna take all these mortgages and bundle them up into a complex derivative called a collateralized debt obligation that's opaque, okay? Nobody really knows what's in there. Then I'm gonna get you a rating agency to rate this thing, AAA. Oh, by the way, I pay you. And um, then you're an insurance company and so are you. And um, I'm gonna get you to insure it because AAA. You can insure that baby. And then I'm going to sell it to you three, your investors. And um, that was a violation of all five of these. I mean, let's start with integrity. Integrity is about being honest, considerate of the interests of others, abiding by your commitments. Everybody got screwed. The homeowners lost their houses. The insurance company looked ridiculous and almost went bankrupt. The, uh, sorry, the rating agency. You're the rating agency, right? The insurance company went bankrupt and uh, the investors all lost their money and the whole global economy collapsed and now there's 40% youth unemployment in Spain. There are sovereign debt crises in five countries in Europe. There's 23% youth unemployment in the United States. And that's not very considerate of the interests of the next generation. We've been telling all you youngsters you work hard, you go to school, you have discipline. You know, you develop your, uh, not just your skills and your knowledge, your capacity to learn and think, and you got into the workforce and you're going to succeed. Well, we kind of lied. Or at least that's, that's the appearance of the situation. Now we can come back and talk about you, because I don't think you're the lost generation. I think that you're a generation that can actually turn this thing around. But what, what we need is a new model. So here's a modest proposal. It comes from the Open Models Company. Right now, the banks have a trillion dollars 
of toxic assets on their balance sheets in the United States. It's actually a trillion plus or minus a trillion because nobody knows what these things are worth. And uh, so therefore banks won't lend money to little companies. How do we get these assets valued? Well, you, the old model is you market, you, um, um, you market to um, um, model and uh, well, well, there is no model, and the nobody's going to trust the banks to figure out uh, what, what the value of assets are. The other approach is you, you let the market determine what, what the value is, but there is no market. So the open model says, let's apply Wikonomics. Um, they actually, in their website, cite Wikonomics as being the, the source of, of their uh, company, and they say, why don't we take all these assets, we'll put them in an exchange and we'll let the, all the world's modelers come and evaluate them. Essentially, we're creating a Linux of risk management, a human genome of risk management. And then they can figure out what the value is using Delphi and other techniques. Then we'll be able to clear up these assets and the economy can move forward. Oh, we would never place our proprietary risk models in, in a commons. They're the source of our competitive advantage, say the banks. Well, hello, they hardly conferred competitive advantage. Collectively, they almost brought down capitalism. So that's one of the examples in that chapter about financial services. Yeah, okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna end there. Uh, actually, uh, well, we could talk about newspapers, the old model, is that the new model? I'm not sure. Uh, global problem solving, the old model doesn't work, but there's a, now a global movement of millions of people that are solving global problems. Um, the university, well, we have an old model based on the lecture, which is why I need to stop lecturing now. <laughs> the lecture is a process whereby the notes of a lecture go to the notes of a student without going through the brains of either. Um, I appreciate the irony that I'm standing up here. But you're actually not going to remember much of this. Will you remember the 16 institutions, the four drivers for change? Will you remember the five principles? It's actually not a good way of learning. I'm just trying to convince you of a couple of things. Um, we need to reinvent uh, government because the old industrial age bureaucracies don't work. So let's create network models and governments can be a platform. We need to rethink democracy because uh, the old you vote, I rule model is not appropriate for a new generation or for this age. I mean, our model of democracy is the best model that 17th century technology can provide. We can move to a, a second generation based on a culture of public deliberation and based on active uh, citizenship. Um, and we need to invent work because the old model is described best, not by me or even Peter Drucker, the best-selling manager book of all time was written by a guy named Scott Adams. They sort of nailed what's wrong with work. So uh, we can move to a whole new model. But as one youngster said to me, electronic mail, mm, that's yesterday's technology. It's good for sending a thank you letter to one of your friend's parents. But beyond that, it's not very helpful. Um, these are the tools of the new operating system for the 21st century enterprise. And uh, this is a really interesting conversation. It's too bad we don't have a few days because we could talk about this. Um, so, 
that's a little flavor. Every one of these institutions is moving from an old model to a new model based on the web and based on these principles. So this is a time of great change. And let me, um, I don't mean to be discouraging at all um, because th this is a time of great danger and peril, but it's also a time of unbelievable promise <coughs> and opportunity. Um, I hope that, I know that economy is tough, that you will buy the book. And I hope that you will come and join us at macroeconomics.com and get involved in the conversation. Let me end with a, uh, a, a thought that's kind of relevant. I wanted to do this because we're in the area. Uh, outside of Oxford is a moor called Otmoor. And um, there's an extraordinary thing that happens there and that happens in some other... Guy just turn the music down a bit. Can we turn the music down a little bit? Um, starlings come together at night. During the day they're out sort of uh, foraging around doing their starling thing, getting uh, food and stuff like that. And what happens is they come together at night and they create one of the most spectacular things in nature. It's called a murmuration. And it's in reference to the murmuring of the wings of the bird. And uh, the murmuration is a function. Uh, it keeps the birds warm for the cold winter night, and it protects the birds from predators. Um, you can actually see in this video, there's a hawk on the right there that is not having much success. Like the birds are chasing the hawk away. They're acting on the basis of their own individual interests, but there seems to be a collective Um, there's also sort of a social order in way, where um, the birds are jockeying and it made us wonder
I'll tell you uh, one thing for sure is the next period is not going to be boring. And so I certainly wish you the best. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dan. So there will be time now for questions and answers. Uh, I will uh, remind you of resisting the temptation to have your own talk while you ask. <laughs> So, okay, we please, have... please, yeah? Yeah, I guess if you can speak into the microphone because this is being broadcast live on the internet. Uh, good evening and thank you very much for an amazing talk and a fantastic PowerPoint. Um, <laughs> Um, my question is this, the latest book of uh, Hajun Chang, uh, 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism, he argues that uh, the washing machine has made more of a transformation to the society than the internet. Um, because people tend to be more euphoric about like the latest inventions. So can you maybe comment a, a bit on that? Well, the washing machine was part of the Industrial Revolution. and. Um, we're talking about the next age now. And, but, but, and I don't mean to be critical or to demean things that happened in the past. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the agrarian economy took us forward from what was before that. We had <laughs> when we developed animal husbandry and agriculture and so on. Before that, we were all foraging around for roots and berries and stuff like that. It was actually women were in the villages who came together and created the agrarian economy while men were all out kind of doing their guy thing. And, um, but then with the Industrial Revolution, we didn't supplant the agricultural economy, we changed it. So we had uh, milking machines and tractors and personal life was transformed by things like refrigerators and washing machines and so on. And now, we're moving to a new networked age, and it doesn't replace the industrial economy, it changes it. So that on farms now, it's not just that farmers have access to the internet and their fences are smart communicating devices. Cows are now chipped, and cows are internet appliances. They have an IP address and stuff like that. So um, I'm, I'm on the board of a manufacturing company called Celestica. It's a $10 billion company. The average skill level of our factory workers is a community college degree. These factories are brimming with robots and they're all internetworked and so on. But, um, and now within the home, the washing machine can communicate with other devices in the home. I actually have a friend in Toronto. Everything in his house that has electrical power has an IP address and all this stuff talks to itself. I have no idea what his refrigerator says to his washing machine, but uh, he was bragging that his fence talks to his sprinkler. And I said, well, Ken, why would you care? He says, Don, if a burglar comes over the fence, the sprinkler is my first line of defense. <laughs> so, um, so this is a new age that we're entering into where we have pervasive ambient computing. The physical world is becoming smart and it's becoming interconnected. The hotel that I'm staying at, and the card is somewhere. No, it must be in my other coat. But anyway, the door has a chip in it. It's internetwork. The door probably has an IP address. 
I actually um, had a camera stolen from a hotel room in Miami, and the door knew about me. It knew who'd been in and out of the room, and we found an unauthorized uh, access. So again, um, you know, I'll just say one other thing. We could go on about this, but uh, there was a French uh, pilot and philosopher from the Second World War, and he said, uh, um, we should welcome the future, for sooner it will be the past. But we should respect the past, for it was once all that was humanly possible. And once it was only possible to create this machine that turned your clothes around rather than having women hand rubbing things, and that was an extraordinary advancement. Well, it's now possible uh, to go forward. And, um, and that's, that's, what, that's what I'm talking about. Yes? Uh, hi, Don. The question I'd like to ask is um, the thing that seems to throw a spanner in the works of your, um, of your, your views is exhaustibles. Particularly, I'm referring to oil and commodities, right? I'd just like to, uh, to hear your thoughts on whether you think this is necessarily true. Are we, <coughs> is, are we going to be able to solve this problem of exhaustibles and things? Uh, well, th will the future have a, have a problem just because we don't have enough to go around? Um, well, that's a very thoughtful question. And, um, and we can have a discussion about it if you want, but I'll just give you a couple of uh, thoughts. First of all, we're actually not going to run out of oil before we destroy the planet. We'll destroy the planet first, and then we'll run out of oil. And we'll destroy the planet with oil. So, um, you know, we've got, we've, we've got to reindustrialize the planet. We don't have a long time to do that. So, uh, but on the other hand, and we absolutely need new sources of energy. There's no question about that. Um, but my view is that, again, the future is not something to be predicted. It's something to achieve. Why don't we apply all of these insights around mass collaboration and collaborative innovation and so on to be building up entrepreneurship and to be transforming science so that we can discover uh, new <coughs> sources of energy? Right now, there's a whole discussion among scientists. They say we need a science 2.0, that our current models are flawed are thinking about intellectual property. Do you know, in many uh, disciplines in science, failed results are not published. Why not? You do see a test a hypothesis, it fails. Why not tell everybody else so that you don't have everybody sort of doing the same uh, darn thing? The human genome, the biotech companies wanted to own a chunk of the human genome, but they figured out, no, you know, we've got to place that in the commons. And then we'll compete on a higher level. It's not about getting rid of capitalism. It's deciding that we're going to think differently about intellectual property and innovation and invention and science and find other, uh, we'll compete on a different platform than, than the one that naturally comes to mind. Increasingly, we don't need to compete on the platform of operating systems now because there are limited number of operating platforms and we can compete on a, on a higher level. So that's, again, what we talk about in the book is how to apply these ideas to overcome these, um, these problems. You know, I could go on. I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll just tell you one example because there are lots of commodities still in the earth. Um, but there are questions about how to find them. 
And uh, some of you may remember from Wikinomics, there was a story about Gold Corp. And uh, does anyone know what I'm talking about? No. Yes. Okay, good. Um, there's a guy named Rob McEwen, and he was the CEO of this company called Gold Corp. The reason I know this story is because he's my neighbor. He actually lives across the street. And he, uh, he held a cocktail party to meet the neighbors. And um, he said, you're Don Tapscott. I've read your books. And I said, great. What do you do? He says, well, I used to be a banker. Now I'm a gold miner. <laughs> and he's a funny guy, too. He introduces his wife to the group. He says, this is Cheryl. She's a gold digger. But uh, anyway, she thankfully is more accomplished than he is <laughs> and, and uh, has a sense of humor as well. But he tells me this amazing story. He takes over this gold mining company and his geologist can't tell him where the gold is. So he gives them more money to go get more geological data. They, keep, they come back and he, they can't tell him where to go into production. After a few years, he's so frustrated he's ready to shut this thing down. But he has a radical idea. He wonders one day, if my geologists don't know where the gold is, maybe somebody else does. So he adopts essentially these principles. He says, uh, on intellectual property, your biggest secret in the mining industry is your geological data. He shares it and publishes it. He collaborates. He holds a contest on the internet called the Gold Corp Challenge. It's basically uh, half a million dollars for anybody who can tell me, do I have any gold? And if so, where is it? <laughs> he gets submissions from all around the world. They use techniques that he's never heard of. And for his half a million dollars in prize money, he finds $3.4 billion worth of gold. The market value of his company goes from $90 million to $10 billion. And I can tell you, because he's my uh, neighbor, he's a happy camper. <laughs> so to my point, there are still resources. Uh, we, can be, we can apply these ideas to finding better resources for things, but also for, um, for getting access to the resources that we have. Now, there's a whole other conversation that we could have that I won't raise right now about how to steward these resources and about how that relates to the architecture of the corporation. We can no, no longer externalize our costs onto society. And again, some of you are economists and know more about this than I do. But this is a, a, a basic idea that, that the cost increasingly, and for this new age, that a co the cost of goods and services should be borne um, by the consumers, by the market for those. And in the past, we haven't been doing that. So the, the main costs of an automobile are externalized. Someone, is anyone here from McDonald's? So I'm going to really get my trouble into and myself into trouble. Someone said, wow, there's all this great, great cheap food. Well, apparently the cost of a big <coughs> Mac overall is about $310 when you consider all of the, the, uh, uh, the costs on human health and on all the costs on carbon and the environment and all the rest of that. So it's not exactly cheap food. So um, we can no longer keep doing that. I promise I'll have shorter answers. This is called, in psychological terms, this is punishment. It tends to extinguish question-asking behavior up here. I think I have to remind you, Dan, to restrain uh, yourself, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hello. Um,
Hi, um, my name is Boy Lee, and I'm a student in Information System and Innovation yeah. Group. And um, I also agree with you that the mass collaboration model is the future of the business, and uh, the current uh, corporate is having their own crisis about uh, desperately recruiting the talent they're looking for, rather than turning to Web 2.0 age and uh, being up more open. But my question is, um, if we consider the fact of the typical Web 2.0 corporations like Facebook or Google, they are also themselves born out of the current uh, capitalist institutions. And are we witnessing a rise of a new breed of corporate uh, model like Google or, Web or, or Facebook who have all the enormous information of our individuals and are we witnessing the rise of another pillar of a society which is independent of the government, the individual freedom and uh, the other institutions. Okay. Everyone hear that? Okay. Um, well, first of you all... You want to rephrase it? Oh, you want to rephrase the question? Well, well, well the idea is that uh, Facebook and Google, is this a new species of, uh, of company that's very different? And also, what are the sort of implications for society on privacy and, and so on? Um, well, first of all, all of our work is not about the technology industry. It's about how these industries transform the way you find gold, or the way you create a government, or the way that we learn, or the way that we take care of our health. But having said that, um, these are a new species of business. I think that's true. Uh, we call them digital conglomerates. <laughs> Google's the sort of farthest along in this. I mean, what is Google? What industry is Google in? <laughs> well, that's, that's the right answer. They're an advertising company. They, make their they sell ads. That's their main source of revenue. But Google is also uh, a media company. They have YouTube. They're a um, software company. I mean, they, they say they don't uh, compete with Microsoft. Uh, somebody asked Eric Schmidt, CEO of Google, do you compete with Microsoft? And he said, well, I don't know. I'm not Microsoft. <laughs> and every week they come up with new products that are targeted at the heart of Microsoft. Um, they're a hardware company. Google's the second largest maker of servers in the United States. They want customers themselves. These football field-sized server farms that are eating up the power grid of the West Coast. Google is a retail company because they sell stuff. They're a telephone company. They have a, a telephone operating uh, platform. Uh, when you sell stuff, you need a payment system. So Google has GBuy. They're a financial uh, services company. There's a Google, Google is a media company in the sense of television, Google TV. There's a Google automobile and go all kinds of Google apps now for automobiles. We've never really seen something like this. We've seen the old conglomerates back in the day, but this is a conglomerate that can spread instantly into adjacent or even, even not so uh, adjacent industries. So uh, Google is also a company that's fighting for social justice. What's with that? I think, I, I think if you had to pick the one organization in the world that's doing the most to fight for freedom and democracy, it would have to be Google. They're taking on the government of China. And they may win. It's a little company. <coughs> so on the other hand, there are huge issues. Now Google says, 
do no evil. But there's a lot of evil to be done here when you have that kind of power. And Facebook, the same thing. Now, um, and, and I'm very concerned about things like privacy. This is another book I wrote that nobody read. It was in 1996. It was called Who Knows? Safeguarding Your Privacy in a Network Age. And everyone said to me, huh? <laughs> What's the issue? But now, we're leaving a trail of digital crumbs. And these crumbs are getting, um, they're, they're getting collected into these mirror images of each of us. The virtual you may know more about you than you do. You can't remember what you said a year ago or what you were wearing at a party a year ago or what movie you rented in your hotel room or, or what health care procedure uh, you had. So this is a potential destruction of everything that we've come to know as our basic right to privacy. And privacy advocates right now are in total disarray because they used to have an enemy that was big brother, right, government. And then the enemy changed to little brother, corporations that were connect, collecting all this stuff into, um, into profiles and using data mining and so on. But now the problem is baby brother, it's you. You are all voluntarily giving away all this information. And there are thousands of young people this year who will not get that dream job because someone did a reference check. It was all looking good, and then they went on to Facebook and they saw you at a party <laughs> doing something. So if, if you're on Facebook, you remember one thing about this talk, go fix your privacy profile. It's called a limited profile. And just about everybody who's a friend of yours should have a limited profile. It's only your really good friends that should get access to that party picture or whatever else. Yeah. Can we get a mic um, down here? So just while the mic is coming in, um, I'm very concerned about this. And um, actually, I do want to say, I know you're anxious to ask a question, but I do want to say one more thing about this. Um, <coughs> I, I made the case to you that transparency is an obligation and an opportunity for institutions. The trouble is that there are some people, including founders of Facebook, who think that transparency is an opportunity and an obligation for individuals. That we should all have a single profile. <laughs> that I should tell you the same amount of stuff I tell my wife. And that if we're all open, it'll be a better world. We won't be cheating on our boyfriends and girlfriends if we're all open. This is about the most dangerous thing I've ever heard. Because privacy is the foundation of a free society. We all assume we have benevolent governments. Well, it wasn't that long ago. We had Joe McCarthy in the United States, or, or I was in Berlin yesterday staying at this hotel right at the Brandenburg Gate, and I was reminded governments are not always benevolent. And as we move into this next period, it's possible all hell can break loose. But also, corporations are not necessarily benevolent. We just found out that cor corporations have been using all this stuff from Facebook that we didn't know about to profile us and to do all this stuff. So we need to each be vigilant and take steps to protect our own privacy. Yeah. Hi, my name is Antanas. I'm doing a master in management here at LSE. 
My question was in, in these new wiki firms, um, I would like to know how firms can trust their workers. Firms are giving a lot of information. How, how they can avoid free riders is a question of control. I didn't quite, uh, what about free riders? You know, uh, the, they are giving information to workers and the workers can take that information. Oh, I see, yeah. yeah and use it for their own purpose. Sure, so how, how can you be open and transparent and share all kinds of information with employees when they might be blogging and just they're tweeting and, and sharing it with the world? Um, you know with employees, in the real world, this is not a problem because people have a real name. If you're an employee, your employer knows your real name. And you behave well on the web. Uh, I'll just give you a couple of examples. Um, this guy Jonathan Schwartz took over as the CEO of Sun Microsystems about five years ago. A very troubled company. Was it five years? Maybe even longer. Um, probably unsavable. It's now been acquired by Oracle. And um, he said, the first thing we need to do is we need to open up to the world. So I'm going to have a policy. Every employee can blog. And his legal department, his PR department, went ballistic. They said, well, you can't do that. Employees are going to take all our private information. They're going to publish it. And we're going to get in trouble with the SEC. And we're going to, there'll be lawsuits again. They've never had a problem in years. Now, they had some guidelines, but they weren't very specific. The big guideline was, don't do anything stupid. <laughs> like publishing financial information would be stupid. Um, another one was, write about something you know something about. Another one was, make it interesting. They've never had a problem. Now, to me, the way to, achi <coughs> to achieve security is to open up. And uh, just again, another story from the book. Um, is the organization that probably cares the most about security would be the intelligence agencies around the world. Okay, after 9-11, intelligence agencies in the United States got a lot of flack. They came under big public scrutiny because it turns out they weren't a community, they were a bunch of fiefdoms. And so they started trying to figure out how do we better share information. And there's a great story of this youngster. He's 23 years old. He always wanted to be a spy. He took computer science, went to work for the CIA. Could hardly wait to go down seven floors at Langley to look around at these amazing computer systems, billion dollar systems. And he gets down there, he looks around. They're 15 year old mainframes that don't do certain things like search. So he starts using Google. He creates a wiki. People start sharing information. One thing leads to the next. Pretty soon they have Intellipedia within the defense or these various intelligence agencies where they're sharing information and ultimately that will probably be opened up to the world. So if you're at an airport and you see something weird, you can contribute. So in this age, it's about being a curator of content. You set the context right and all kinds of good things can happen. People are respectful. We have good conversations. Look at Wikipedia. How can this be that all these volunteers create something as good as the Nobel laureates and the Pulitzer Prize winners and the learned professors? Well, it turns out there are Pulitzer Prize winners that write for Wikipedia, but 
but you curate a context and good things can happen. Now sometimes you don't want people to say who they are. You actually want anonymous comments. Um, but again, you need to curate that. I'm on a thing called Ripple, R-Y-P-P-L-E. It's in my company, where I've chosen a dozen people to give me anonymous feedback about me. So if one of them was here today, they'd give me feedback about my lecture. And, but, but I've chosen them. I don't know who's giving me the feedback, unless, of course, there's only one person in the room or something like that. But um, this helps me get better. Now, in a lot of these online discussions, they're anonymous, and people behave not so well when that's the case. But sometimes it's better to have a wild and crazy discussion than to force people to actually um, admit who they are. And sometimes you get an open discussion that even for a CEO of a company, that's a better thing to have. You want to really test the, uh, the environment and test the, 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 the context. One last question. You have to find the right man or woman to ask the last question. <laughs> I can ask. Okay. You, <laughs> this is a, like a famous journalist here. So, okay, well, we'll ask you too. I'll give half an answer to each of these, okay? Uh, Don, you probably know the, the mess this country is in and uh, what happened on Wednesday, the comprehensive spending review. Uh, so we'll have to find uh, several billions of pounds of uh, savings. And um, it was mentioned that uh, information technology will have a a huge role to play. And uh, before all of this happened, there was the idea of an of a app store for government, for the uh, development of services and so on. Yeah. And uh, now that's been totally dismissed and uh, apparently put in the back burner. So you said that you're doing some work with the government of Portugal. So can you share some ideas yeah. of account? <laughs> okay, well, I'll <laughs> give you a, a quick done? answer. There are two ways to cut government costs. There's the brute force industrial way where you go chopping things and it really hurts services and where it hurts the economy. I mean, Paul Krugman's got an article in the New York Times today saying this is mad from an economic point of view, that the last thing in the world you want to do is, be, um, is putting 400,000 people out on the street. But I'm not an economist and I can't speak to that. But um, if there, because of the web, governments can be a platform. Governments can be a platform upon which apps can be developed whereby citizens, civil society organizations, private companies, and other government agencies can self-organize to create public value. And one way to do that is just to release data. Now, Tim Berners-Lee, a local guy, is big on this. Um, and he's absolutely right. Just release data. I was with the CEO of Melbourne a couple of uh, months ago in, in Australia, and we were talking about it, and I said to her, like, just give me classes of data that you have, safety stuff. And she said, well, we got data about bicycle accidents. And I said, just release it. Within 24 hours, someone will do a Google mashup, uh, a Google Maps, and it'll show all the dangerous places to go in Melbourne. Cyclists will stay away from that. You'll be saving lives in a week, and it won't cost you a cent as a government. So this is not about outsourcing. There's nothing in in the first place. It's not about privatization. It's about thinking about, it's about creating a new division of labor in society, about how you create public value. So we could, we could go on, but I, I did promise that we could do this one quickly, yeah. okay?
I don't see anyone leaping out that here. It is Friday thing. night. So. <coughs> Hi, Don. My name's Nick. Um, yeah. I know you were very against the introduction of the Digital Economy Act in the UK earlier this year, quite outspoken against... You wanted a public debate with Peter Manson. And um, one of the criticisms of the UK economy is that we've had an over-reliance on financial services and increasingly due to sort of outsourcing and collaboration that really we should be looked upon as a, a nation that excels in, in ideas and really there's been a lot of uh, talk in public discourse about needing to really grow our creative industries and coming out of this recession really being known and relying sort of more, more on our creative industries. Based on my question is, do you think the introduction of the Digital Economy Act has been a very regressive step and if so what do you think the implications for the UK creative industries will be over the next couple of years or so? Well the part of the, the act, and I feel that I have, even though I'm not a Brit, I'm only from the colonies, okay? Um, <laughs> but I feel that I have a bit of a, a right to talk about this, because I did write the book The Digital Economy, <laughs> and I coined that term. So, um, but and the part of the act that I would focus on is the stuff having to do with intellectual property and especially the peer-to-peer -peer file sharing. I think that we need to rethink IP for this new world because IP, when it becomes bits, behaves differently. And, and it's at the heart of innovation. So the new models of innovation are about networking human capability. And if you do that, you can't expect to own everything. So we need to think differently about IP. Again, as I said, you have a portfolio of some you own and some you share within your business web and then some you may actually place in the commons. So the record industry um, took the old point of view that, no, our IP is our IP. We created it, we own it, and uh, you infringe upon it, we'll get out our lawyers. Well, that didn't work. They sought a, a legal solution to what is a much bigger problem. And that was sort of enshrined in the Digital Economy Act. And I think that that's regressive and it takes us backward. I mean, most young people are file shares. So what are we going to do? Eventually criminalize a majority of the new generation? You know, it's a little different um, sharing uh, a music file than breaking into the back of a house with a crowbar and taking something uh, away from someone. And if there was no business model solution for the record industry, then I would be much more sympathetic. But they could move towards this thing. It's called Everywhere Internet Audio. I wrote an article, it was now eight years ago in the New York Times, explaining this is what they should do. And I buy, you, you place music in a commons and um, you stream it. And if I listen to Mick Jagger can't get no satisfaction. Um, I'm paying two pounds a month for this, and a couple of microcents go to the Rolling Stones. And we use actuarial economics to divvy up how the proceeds get allocated. We do this in all kinds of ways in society. Why not apply this to culture as well? And then the whole issue of file sharing, the whole issue of legal stuff of intellectual property and the potential criminalization of the majority of a population, that, that problem uh, basically goes away. But it's a good question to end on because it gets back to this thing about leadership. You know, a paradigm, I just described a new paradigm. It's a mental model. 
And paradigms put boundaries around what we think and they, they uh, constrain our actions and they're often based on assumptions that are so strong that we don't know that they're there. Um, the Earth is at the center of the universe. The, uh, that was a paradigm. The big uh, problem in the world is communism. Remember that one? Yeah, we do. <laughs> um, <laughs> the purpose, some, a lot of you are from the IT um, uh, department here in LSC, which has a, a great reputation, but the old model of IT, information technology is about automating existing business processes with the goal of reducing headcount. Um, well, something can happen in art or science or culture, technology, whatever, that causes a change to occur. And when you have that, leaders of the old, Michael Mandelson, bless his heart, have great difficulty embracing the new. New paradigms cause dislocation and conflict, and they're nearly always received with, with, uh, with coolness or worse. Vested interests fight against change. And this is, this is a big problem. And it's a great final thought to end on because to me, you know, when you look at where leadership comes from, and I've studied thousands of organizations, leadership typically doesn't come from the top. It can, you know, head of state. Actually, in Portugal, the prime minister, I'm working with him, he is so determined to do this because he has to. And, and, and I'm working with a few other country leaders, but it's very rare. Sometimes a CEO, CIO, business unit manager, uh, professor. Um, a, we've got a, a, a story of a secretary who was the key person in the transformation of a division of one of the world's biggest banks. And she had what it took to be a leader. She willed it. So this new you know, age of network intelligence, leadership is kind of each of our own personal opportunity with we, uh, if we will it. So I hope that each of you will kind of um, uh, th think about that, that I can be a leader for this change. It's not something that's going to be done by the government or by the CEOs of big banks or something like that. It, it's something that I can affect myself. Okay, thank you very much, Dan. Let's give him an applause.